Okay, don't be afraid. The book of Revelation is not designed to scare you. It's designed to give you hope. It's all about hope. It's all about discipleship. But most importantly, it is all about Jesus Christ. So we are so excited to offer these sermons on the book of Revelation. We hope you enjoy them. My friends, have you ever noticed how the songs, the music in a movie or a television show, they impact us emotionally? You know, long after watching a movie, I can see it in my mind's eye by listening to the soundtrack. I see the plot unfolding. I tense up with the antagonist's ominous theme. I rejoice with the protagonist's victorious song. The movies that impact me the most are the ones where I connect through song emotionally to a character or intellectually to the situation. For example, from Harry Potter and composer John Williams, I know Hedwig's theme. I can imagine the white snowy owl and her great big wingspan as the music is lilting and she's circling and flying. From the Lord of Rings, Lord of the Rings and, and from Howard Shore, oh, I love that percussion and the brass and the choirs and all of it pounding, conveying danger, urgency, power struggles as the enemy proceeds to attack the glorious white city of Gondor. So I tell you this because in a similar fashion, I hear playing through my head a soundtrack, if you will, for the book of Revelation. The score has been loud and discordant in chapters 12 and 13. I can see the dragon and the beasts and the danger. And in chapter 14, the music, if you will, it's not fully victorious yet. That great, best symphony of all will play in chapters 21 and 22 for me. But here in chapter 14, it is positive. There's just enough to help us through, to restore us, to sustain us for what will come later. So let's dive in. If you have your Bible, or if you have a Bible app on your phone, I will trust you're not texting. We're gonna read parts of chapter 14. We'll read verses one through five first, and then we'll read 14 through 20. And it's also on the screens here. Then I looked, and there before me was the Lamb, standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a sound from heaven, like the roar of rushing waters, like a loud peal of thunder. And the sound I heard was like that of harpists playing their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. No one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. These are those who did not defile themselves with women, for they remained virgins. 
They follow the lamb wherever he goes. They were purchased from among mankind and offered as first fruits to God and the lamb. No lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless. And then moving down to verse 14, I looked and there before me was a white cloud and seated on the cloud was one like a son of man with a crown of gold on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And then another angel came out of the temple and called in a loud voice to him who was sitting on the cloud, take up your sickle and reap because the time to reap has come for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who was seated on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth and the earth was harvested. Another angel came out of the temple in heaven and he too had a sharp sickle. Still another angel who had charge of the fire came from the altar and called in a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle. Take your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of grapes from the earth's vine because its grapes are ripe. The angel swung his sickle on the earth, gathered its grapes, and threw them into the great winepress of God's wrath. They were trampled in the winepress outside the city, and blood flowed out of the press, rising as high as the horse's bridles for a distance of 1,600 stadia. Wow, okay, I know that sounds a little rough, Just hang in there with me because really, it's good news. This indeed is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please pray with me. Almighty God, you are sovereign. You are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And we wrestle with this text. I pray, Lord, as we do, that you will write it on our hearts, that you will move your Holy Spirit among us, and that as we leave this place, we will see it in a whole new light as you speak to us. In Jesus' strong name we pray, amen. So as chapter 14 opens, the scene changes for John from ominous in 12 and 13 now to something more hopeful. He looks up and he sees the lamb standing on Mount Zion The victorious ascended Christ is represented by the lamb. And it's natural that he should come to Mount Zion. The early church readers of John's uh, day, they, they they would welcome this. They would understand this from this vision. As Mark read from the second Psalm, nations conspire or they rage and people imagine foolish things but God, God answer and answers and it is to set his king upon my holy hill of Zion at Jerusalem. And God's chosen king does not stand there alone. With him are the 144,000 who bear his name. Now remember, this is not a limitation of only 144,000. This represents a big number in Revelation. It conveys all of God's people, the full and complete number of the redeemed are with the Christ. 
And John hears something like rushing water, like peals of thunder, something like a magnificent symphony. And God's people sing a new song. It's a redemption song. It's sung before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders, just as I preached to you way back in chapter four about that opulent, great throne room. What a majestic scene. And John emphasizes the precious value of this song that only the redeemed themselves can learn. God's redeemed people are distinct. And not merely by the power that the Holy Spirit gives them. They are different from the rest of the world because they have chosen to be faithful to God. Now, depending on your Bible translation, John speaks of God's redeemed people as celibate or as virgins. And remember, as we've told you all along, revelation does not mean what it says, it means what it means. Oh, y'all are so good. It doesn't literally take a physically intimate connotation here. Instead, it's a spiritually intimate connotation. Each one of God's people has chosen to be loyal to the lamb and to the lamb alone. They haven't dabbled in other gods. They haven't switched to another God who promises something better, okay? First century readers would have recognized this because throughout the Bible, spiritual impurity indicates betrayal of God or denial of the Christ. In the midst of all the dishonesty on the earth over all the ages of false rule that's supported by false worship, when it feels like evil is winning, Christ still stands. And he stands with faithful followers. So this verbiage here conveys that God's people are not spiritually promiscuous with other gods. Instead, they commit fully to Jesus. They choose to be faithful. They follow the lamb wherever he goes. You know, throughout his public ministry, Jesus stressed that if anyone wanted to follow him, they were to deny self, take up the cross, and commit to him. The way to victory is the way of the cross. The way that Christ is the victor over death is to die. And Jesus died a sacrificial death for us in order for death to have no control over our eternal lives. And that makes death, or Satan, or the dragon, very, very angry. Very angry to lose out on an opportunity with you. He tries in myriad ways to deceive you, to convince you otherwise, to seduce you away from your one true love that we talked about way back in chapter two. Oh, this deception is just as old as time. 
It's the tree of knowledge of good and evil in the Garden of Eden. It's the Tower of Babel. It's the golden calf in Old Testament times. In John's time, it's Caesar worship. And in our time, it comes in subtle forms that sound good, look good, feel good. But they do not always acknowledge God and sometimes they misrepresent God. Well, the only way to withstand it is to stand with the lamb, to follow wherever he goes, to confess and repent when we sin, to prevent that from festering within us, and to receive forgiveness. We have been purchased with a high price in Jesus' blood. And his sacrifice sets us apart so that God sees us through the lens of Jesus Christ, forgiven. And when the consequences for our sins have already been paid, God sees Christ's blamelessness rather than our sin. He is the lamb that is free of blemish. There is no lie in his mouth. Then when we look at verses 14 to 20, these are concerning the harvest, the grapes, the blood, and at face value, if we don't truly understand the text, it can seem graphic, painful, chaotic, somehow cruel. But really, this is a joyous occasion. This describes the second coming of the Christ. So I wanna share with you what John saw in this part of the vision, beginning at verse 14. He looked up and he saw Jesus sitting on a white cloud, wearing a golden crown and holding a sickle in his hand. In biblical times, this hook is what they would swing to cut the wheat. Now in modern day, this work is automated and it is handled by a machine called a combine. I am quite familiar with this because I married a farm boy from the wheat country in Washington state. Harvest is a joyful time. It's this benefit that comes after planting and protecting and growing the wheat. So it's a joyful time when Jesus comes to pluck or to gather, as the original Greek would be, for, or to reap or to harvest. And the angel comes out of the temple and delivers this divine message to the Christ. The time to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. In the wheat country in Washington, the days leading up to the harvest can have an excitement about them. There's just a bit of tension in a way. Is the crop good? Is it ready? Has the wheat developed like we hoped? And the anticipation builds. You've been checking the wheat to see if it's ready. You've been watching the weather to make sure it's not gonna rain on your harvest day. You have gathered the helpers to drive the wheat truck and to drive the combine, or you've told your kids, it's time. And harvest days are long and they're hot. And the work is hard and it's good. 
and everyone and everything you own is covered in dust and in the wheat chaff. And there's joy and there's relief to get this crop in before anything could happen to it. And then everyone gathers to celebrate and to eat. So in verse 18, when the angel tells the Christ that the harvest of the earth is ripe, that's a time for joy. It's a time for celebration. It means that Jesus' own, his followers, are ready for kingdom life in heaven. The invitation has been extended to all who will receive it. The time has been given for everyone to respond, everyone who will commit to the Christ. And the faithful are ready to be saved. So harvest is salvation. You notice that another angel comes outside the temple to announce the grapes are ripe. Outside the temple. The wine press is away from the city. And it is appropriate that John writes this way because the grapes are trampled in the wine press outside the city just as our Savior was taken outside the city of Jerusalem to be crucified on the cross. The angel swings this sickle for the cluster of grapes. And the blood, what might at first be glance, might be seen as being excessive, this is really the sacrificial blood of Jesus. The vision here is that all of God's people will be covered with the blood of Jesus Christ. His once and for all sacrifice is sufficient. There's enough to bless every one of us with forgiveness. That is what stands before the Father instead of our sin. The consequences for our sin have been paid in full and Jesus defeats evil sacrificially. Death, Satan, the dragon, cannot have us. When our son Benjamin was in middle school, he decided he was gonna read Revelation. I was in seminary, so I just kinda watched and waited to see if he had questions, see if he's really gonna do this. I know adults who say this. And when he finished, he didn't really have anything to say. And I asked, well, what did you think? And he answered, Peter Jackson, the director of the Lord of the Rings trilogy, he said, Peter Jackson needs to make a movie on Revelation. I'm thinking, boy, action, adventure, drama, battles. And he says, no, mom. People watch Peter Jackson's movies. He needs to make a movie about Revelation to convince them to know Jesus. <laughs> and while I absolutely love Benjamin's idea, my friends, that discipleship is on us. We need to share the gospel in a culture that is hesitant to commit. 
people wait till the last minute or they don't commit at all. You know, I, I might say that I'll attend an event, but then I can tell myself, I can always cancel, especially if something better comes along. The prevalent mindset today is convenient. It doesn't lock me into anything I don't wanna do. I keep my options open and I don't have to commit to an event or an institution or a vow. It's Satan's subtle way of telling us we don't have to make a decision right now. Well, my friends, God is not convenient and investing in a relationship with the sovereign God does take a commitment. And the commitment to worship God alone, it brings blessings beyond measure. In good Presbyterian fashion, I have three to share with you right now. One is that Christians are never alone. We always have the Holy Spirit with us, dwelling in us, filling us, guiding us, comforting us. The second one is that Christians know there is a place prepared for us. There's, there's a mansion prepared for each and every one of us by our Savior, and He will return one day to take us to that place. We will live forever with Him. And then the third one is that Christians are loved, cherished, valued by Creator God so much that He sent His only Son to die in sacrifice on the cross for us. These kinds of blessings cannot be found anywhere else with anyone else, in any other faith, in any other worship. And you have free will. God's not gonna demand that you go with him. It's his great desire that everyone he created wants to live with him eternally. So do you choose to live how you were created? to live out your days as an image bearer of God? Do you choose to put one foot in Christianity and one foot in today's culture? Do you choose to oppose the image in which you were created? Some of you have already decided. You've already accepted the gracious invitation. You have committed to be a Jesus follower, to follow Jesus alone. Now get out there and get everyone else. Have enough compassion on your fellow humans, your neighbors, your own family members to help them know Jesus. Love them enough to work through the social awkwardness and tell them about Jesus. Because I'm telling you, God will also take account of their lives. And their unbelief means that their consequences are on them. They've not been paid by Christ. It will be their sin. What a horrible way to go. When, when we know that that's the choice before someone, that they can choose God and choose blessings, or they can choose against God and face those horrific consequences, then the onus is on 
us to share the gospel. So in order to do that, it's crucial that we as image bearers know what we believe, that we're fluent in the gospel, that we are literate in God's story. The way to resist Satan's attractiveness, his deceptive lure, is to know the gospel, to be fully equipped in the word of God and fully empowered by the Holy Spirit. This is why we offer various Sunday school classes and Bible studies. That's why you hear me repeatedly pray that God would grant us the courage to share the gospel when we go from this place, from this time, to share it with just one other someone. So one last thing. If you have not yet responded to God's beautiful invitation, to the Lamb's call to follow him wherever he goes, please see me. Let me help you make that commitment today. Following the service, I'll be in the narthex or the lobby, and I would love to pray that with you. If you'd feel more comfortable with Chad or Roland or Mark, that's great too. Any one of us would consider that an honor to pray with you to know Jesus as your Lord, as your savior of your life. What a glorious music that would bring in heaven. And that is my prayer for you. Amen. God of might and strength and power, we are in awe of you, in awe of how you would sacrifice the Christ for the likes of us, how you would fill each and every one of us with the Holy Spirit. I pray, Lord, yes, grant us the courage to share the gospel with just one other someone today. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. You can find us online at www.fpc-kingwood.org. Our services are available on our website and find us on Instagram at fpc underscore kingwood. We'll see you next time.